A very good afternoon to our audience from warm and humid Singapore. And if you did join us early on Tuesday for a webinar on China and the Middle East, then welcome back to another event hosted by the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. My name is Clemens Che, and I will be moderating today's panel entitled The Gulf and Beyond Assessing Israel's Expanding Arab Relations. This is a relevant topic considering the announcement of landmark agreements over the last six months that open new economic and diplomatic relations between Israel and Arab states such as the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. Yet, despite the initial accelerated rate of official normalization between these states and Israel, there remains fundamental differences that are unaddressed. On the international arena, a new Biden administration enters the scene and the Arab states have two moves to recalibrate their respective foreign policies. Today, our panel of experts will weigh in with the analysis of Israel's diplomatic outreach to the Arab world. So before I begin introducing our speakers, please allow me to run through the sequence of proceedings. We have three speakers on the panel, and each of them will give a 10 to 15 minutes presentation, following which we will have a Q&A segment. Members of the audience are, of course, welcome to ask their questions via two methods. First, by typing in the Q&A chat box for Zoom, or second, to use the raise hand function on Zoom, and then we'll proceed to unmute you so you may ask your question. Now, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers for today. First, we have Mr. Yossi Melman, an Israeli journalist, commentator, and writer specializing in strategic security, intelligence, and nuclear affairs. He covers these topics regularly for the Israeli daily Haaretz and contributes to numerous publications around the world. He's the author of 10 books on Israeli and Middle Eastern security, notably the New York Times bestseller, Every Spy a Prince, and also another book entitled Spies Against Armageddon, both co-authored with Dan Raviv. In 2017, Mr. Melman created the Netflix documentary series called Inside the Mossad, which is Israel's National Intelligence Agency. So welcome aboard, Mr. Melman. We would also like to welcome Mr. Ali Dogan, a research fellow and doctoral candidate at the Leibniz Zentrum Moderna Orient in Berlin, or the ZMO. The institute focuses on comparative studies of the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. Mr. Dogan's doctorate delves into the cooperation between the Federal Intelligence Service and the Iraqi Intelligence Services from 1969 to 1990. Mr. Dogan was also previously a consultant for the German business delegation for Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Yemen. So welcome on board, Mr. Dogan. Also joining us today as speaker is Dr. Yoel Guzanski, a senior research fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies, INSS, at Tel Aviv University, specializing in Gulf politics and security. Dr. Guzanski is also a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute in Washington, DC, and previously held positions at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, the Israel Institute, and was also a Fulbright scholar. He has served on Israel's National Security Council in the Prime Minister's Office, coordinating the work on Iran and the Gulf and is currently a consultant to several ministries. He is the co-author of Fraternal Enemies, Israel and the Gulf Monarchies, alongside Clive Jones at Durham University. So welcome on board, Dr. Guzanski. Without further ado, let us now get to the heart of today's topic. Our first presenter for today is Mr. Yossi Melman, 
I'm Yossi, I'm certain you are closely following the fallout of the current inconclusive Israeli election. So we would love to hear your thoughts on how domestic politics would have an impact on the country's Arab relations, notably with Jordan and the UAE. In one article where you were quoted, you also mentioned how Biden and his team consider Netanyahu's personal chemistry with the last president, Donald Trump, as a hurdle. So what, what next when we factor in the US into Arab-Israeli relations overall? So another interesting remark was that you'll see you noted that there was an authorized leak uh, that, that announced the supposedly clandestine meeting between Netanyahu and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman last December. So is this a significant step forward in Israel's ties in the Arab world? So we would love to hear your thoughts. You'll see the stage is yours. Uh, you, you have to unmute. Thank you. Okay. Is it okay now? Do you hear yes. me? Okay. Thank you, Clemens. It's my pleasure and honor to be here with such a distinguished uh, gathering of scholars and participants. Um, a few days ago, uh, Israelis and Jews around the world celebrated uh, Passover. Which, is, which signifies freedom and liberation, national liberation and uh, liberation from slavery. Passover 2021 was just three days after our national elections, fourth in two years. Um, the elections resulted, as you, as you mentioned, Clemens, uh, with inconclusive uh, results. Um, once again, um, we face a deadlock, uh, and um, this this reason is nothing to do with the political system. Well, maybe the political system contributes a little bit to the deadlock, but above all, it's a reflection of the um, the divisions. Uh, and the polarization of Israeli society, which are rooted in, in, his, in at least in, if not in the far history, in the short-term history of the last 30, 40 years, the divisions are along um, religious, ethnical, demographic, political lines, but also it evolves around uh, ideological uh, questions. Yet, it seems that this time, despite the very um, delicate balance of, uh, of power division in, in, uh, as a result of the election, there is, a, there is a slim chance, but still a chance, that um, after 12 years in power, Netanyahu will not be able to form his, his government, a coalition, and, and the other parties, will um, uh, will somehow put together um, a force which would uh, bring to a new government a new coalition the the, the, the elections have been uh, revolving around one issue not ideology not national security issues not foreign policy not even domestic pro problems Although they were in the on the, in the background, it all revolves around one question: Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu. We call him Bibi. 
uh, that is nickname. Uh, it's whether it's for Netanyahu or against Netanyahu. And for the first time, it seems that there are 50, 52, maybe 53 uh, percent of people who are ready uh, to stand up and oppose uh, Netanyahu. And he might be removed from office, but it's not clear. Uh, he has been a great, great political pl player. And uh, you never say never when it comes to to Netanyahu. Uh, as I mentioned, they are, they, the elections ha have nothing to do with foreign policy. And most likely, whatever the results of, of forming the government will be, they will not affect Israel's foreign policy, Ma maybe on the margins, mm -hmm. but not at the core of the issues that uh, consist of, of uh, uh, foreign, of Israel's foreign policy. Uh, there are two Netanyahu's, basically. There is no one Netanyahu. There is Netanyahu, the prime minister. There is Netanyahu, uh, uh, Netanyahu, the prime minister, but he is a politician. And as a politician, he is very, I would say, he's a tiny, picky, argumentative uh, 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 politicians who, 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 who is, whose main concern are his survival um, and his family. Uh, and then there is um, Netanyahu, the statesman. Netanyahu, who has a very clear-cut, uh, visionary outlook. Um, uh, this is the Netanyahu who is responsible for not, not single-handedly, but he's responsible with his vision and with his belief to bring about the Abraham Accord and the diplomatic relations with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, which were recently clinched. Um, the Arab League consists of 22 nations. Uh, already six of them, the four mentioned above, plus Jordan and uh, Egypt, have already some sort of diplomatic relation at various levels with, with Israel. On top of that, we have unofficial time, uh, secret, some of them secret uh, ties with more Arab nations, uh, with Qatar, uh, we, even with Algeria to a certain degree, certainly with Tunisia um, and Saudi Arabia. So Israel has, has been making inroads into the Arab world, not just recently, it has been a long process of the last 30, 40 years. Now, why uh, why these intimate relations between Israel and, and, and some of the Arab worlds have been put in place, I would name uh, three, four reasons. One, and the most important, and the most important is I think there is a, a feeling of fatigue of the Palestinian issue among more and more Arab nations. Um, secondly, 
security intelligence ties. Uh, when it comes to United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, uh, Oman, which has relations with not official relations with Israel, uh, certainly Saudi Arabia, their main concern vis-a-vis -vis Israel is Iran. The fear of nuclear Iran, the fear of Iran's aspirations for hegemony in the region, um, Iran's involvement in destabilizing the countries around the Middle East, uh, Iraq, uh, Lebanon, uh, Syria, of course, Yemen, even uh, its involvement in the Horn of Africa, Djibouti, Somalia, and, and so on. The third reason, which, which is bringing Israel, uh, Arab nations and Israel together, is the, is the technology, cyber, and innovation, mostly in, in the intelligence field, but also in some other civilian um, areas like agriculture, irrigation, um, uh, medicine, and, 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 and so on. The fourth reason, uh, the fourth factor, is, is Trump, Donald Trump. He changed the equation of, 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 of which were, which were uh, equations which dominated and ruled the relations between Israel and the Arab nations, between Israel and the Palestinians by the previous administration, not just Obama, but I would, uh, I would say since 67. And the equation was very simple. The Arab world would not move forward uh, establishing diplomatic relations, trade uh, ties, and so on with Israel unless there is a progress on the Palestinian uh, front. Um, Donald Trump changed it, and uh, he pushed uh, the, pushed the the, the, the relations with, the, with some of the Arab nations uh, forward while the Palestinians were left behind. And they were left behind because, as I said, the Arab world was ready to, to, re to accept it. The, the Arab populations are less and less masses. Arab masses are less and less interested in, in, uh, in, in the Palestinian issue. And they are less interested because uh, they feel that it goes nowhere. It was, uh, you need two for tango. I wouldn't put the blame on, on the Palestinians, solely on the Palestinians, but, uh, but also the Palestinians sure bear some responsibility for not moving forward. It was an Israeli famous uh, foreign minister and, and, and prestigious diplomat in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Uh, called Abba Ibn, uh, world-renowned diplomat, and he said that the Palestinians have never uh, missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. They always, at junctions of historical uh, decisions, they uh, they back off, they back out, they they they, they stop, they pause, um, and they create questions, they pose questions, and create difficulties. And, and, and the world goes on. 
So if we put all these elements together, we see the results of what is now going, be, going on between Israel and, and the Gulf Emirates. Uh, but there is a caveat, uh, and it's in the form of Saudi Arabia as an example. Saudi Arabia has shared all these elements which I just uh, uh, outlined. The fatigue of the, of the Palestinian issue, the security intelligence ties, the fear of Iran, technology, uh, uh, the Trump uh, backing, but Saudi Arabia being what it is, a very conservative nation, uh, the religious uh, hierarchy, the dominance and all that, Saudi Arabia will not jump the open diplomatic wagon of Israeli-Arab relations unless there is some sort of a progress vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians. So, uh, and certainly nothing will move, will go, will surface, will go on uh, in the open as long as, as King Salman is in, is in, in power. Uh, MBS is ready, the, the Crown Prince is ready to, to, he's being very bold and daring in, in, in many ways. Um, but uh, I think Saudi Arabia is not ready, and I'm not sure it will ever be ready to have full diplomatic relations with Israel as long as the, there is this thorn or this obstacle of uh, Israeli-Palestinian confrontation. And certainly, certainly the relations, and this is my final uh, comment, the relations between Israel and the Arab world are very fragile. Um, we saw it before, after, after, after the Oslo Accords of 94, 95, 96, um, Israel opened embassies and renewed relations and they, uh, with many, many countries in the world, including in the Arab world. There were missions, diplomatic missions by Morocco, Qatar, if I'm not mistaken, Mauritania, which is part of the Arab League and a few others, Oman, Bahrain, um, and then when there was an outbreak of violence and hostilities between Israel and the Palestinians, what we call the Second Intifada, all of them uh, cut off relations with Israel, closed their diplomatic missions in Tel Aviv or in Rabat, Morocco or in Qatar, and said, we are not going anywhere unless there is some sort of a progress or, or reconciliation with the Palestinians. So, so this honeymoon between Israel and the, and the Gulf states is, 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 is strong, solid, but at the same time, it's very delicate and fragile and events of violent and hostilities in the Middle East between mostly Israel and the Palestinians and invasion of Israel to, to Gaza, for example, can completely change the picture. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Melman, for your most insightful comments and remarks. We will now turn to Mr. Alex Dogan, and I urge our audience to start putting on your thinking caps, but we still have to hold them off for now. Now, Alex, your latest piece on neom diplomacy mentioned that Riyadh's relations with Israel is necessary for the kingdom to complete NEOM. 
So if you could kindly take us through this and how this aspect can or cannot evolve. We also love to hear your assessment of Turkey's relations with Israel, Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, for example, which have led to symbolic changes, for instance, in Ankara's relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood. So Ali, handing over to you, please. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Clements. Um, I have to say that I can't give you much on the much information on the relations between Turkey and these countries, um, because Neom, um, uh, the project Neom, doesn't really have something to do with these relations. But I will start with Neom, and then I will give an uh, uh, an overview about the relations between uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel, and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and. Yeah, beginning with my talk, um, um, maybe some of you heard about this meeting uh, on November 23rd, 2020, um, um, between um, Netanyahu and uh, the chief of Mossad, Yossi Cohen, and uh, Mohammed bin Salman, which took place in Neom. So Neom is an interesting place for me personally, because I worked in Saudi Arabia for a year, and I visited this region. So it is something which I took with me through the years and I was, uh, I'm actually working now on Iraq and the, the German intelligence agency, but I was always kind of trying to, to have a follow up on what is going on in Neom and how it's being used in, in Saudi foreign policy. So what is Neom? Neom um, is an acronym for NEO standing for new and the M standing for the Arabic word Mustaqbal. And um, NEOM is a $500 billion futuristic megacity, planned city project, um, which is located in the northwest of Saudi Arabia, in the Tabuk region at the Gulf of Aqaba. NEOM is a part of the Saudi Vision 2030, which was released in 2017, just months after Mohammed bin Salman came to power or after his appointment as Crown Prince. And NEOM um, and all these uh, mega projects in the Saudi Vision 2030 are the preparation for the post-oil era, which means that these mega projects and especially NEOM shall diversify the economy of Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia wants to become less dependent on oil and this is what um, uh, all these mega projects within the Saudi Vision 2030 are about. Neom is just one of these mega projects. There are several others like Patiya in, in Riyadh, which is kind of a Disneyland. And uh, then there is the Red Sea Development Project, which shall be a touristic island. And then there are also, um, I mean, uh, other, other projects which were built by King Abdullah during his time, like the King Abdullah Financial District in Riyadh and the King Abdullah Economic City, which are maybe not that futuristic, but which are also a kind of uh, projects to diversify the economy of Saudi Arabia. So why or how does NEOM affect uh, the foreign policy of Saudi Arabia? I think that uh, NEOM plays a tactical role in, in Saudi Arabia's foreign policy. So first of all, NEOM is used as a soft power, as a soft power tool in, in Saudi Arabia's foreign policy. What is a soft power tool? A soft power tool, um, like 
uh, Saudi Arabia is using it as something or the NEON project and all these other projects and uh, futuristic and touristic ideas and liberal ideas within these projects to reshape the image of Saudi Arabia, especially in the West. And we have examples like uh, advertisements in the Wall Street Journal, advertisements in European TV channels, and maybe some of you already saw advertisements of Saudi Arabia, like projects uh, like Neom or uh, Visit Saudi in YouTube. So there is, these projects are used to create a kind of, or reshape the image of, of Saudi Arabia. The second point I want to make, and this is what makes NEOM unique for Saudi Arabian foreign policy, is that it's increasingly used for um, diplomatic negotiations or high-level meetings. So we had the meeting between Netanyahu and Mohammed bin Salman, and Yossi Kohan was also there, the chief of Mossad, but also Michael Pompeo was there, the former, for, former foreign minister of the US. And before then, in 2018, for example, Sisi met the king of Saudi Arabia, Neom. Then just last week, we had the meeting between Mohammed bin Salman and the for, uh, foreign minister of uh, China. And I think that Neom gets more and more interesting through using it as a, as a, as a location for high-level meetings. So as a result, um, I am arguing that um, there is a kind of neon diplomacy which Saudi Arabia is using. So this includes, as I said, the soft power and on the other side, a location for high level meetings. But what I say, what I mean with neon diplomacy is not just the project itself, but all these projects behind that and Mohammed bin Salman's aspirations. So it is behind the term neon diplomacy, there is a lot more than only this project. It is the diversifying of the economy, Mohammed bin Salman's aspirations, the soft power tools, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, what does Neom have to do with the current developments um, between Israel and the Gulf? Um, for that, I would like to share my screen for two images. Clements, do you see my screen and the cursor? Okay, good. So my argument is that relations with Israel are necessary to complete NEOM. So as you can see, NEOM is here. And the plan also, this plan was already made in the 2000s, is to um, build a bridge over here to Egypt. And this was um, already negotiated, as I said, in the 2000s. And for Neom, this is one of the uh, one of the plans which should be done in the next years. And th this is the reason why I am arguing that if this built uh, this bridge needs to be built, there also needs to be either open negotiations with Israel or secret negotiations. So building this bridge means that, I mean, why is it that uh, the negotiations need to be made? The reason is that uh, the Strait of Tehran, which is here, you can see it with my cursor, it's a kind of street for, 
for um, the ships and the free shipping way for uh, Israel. And this um, agreement was made in 1979 between Egypt and Israel. So Egypt handed over these two islands, Tiran and Sanafir in 2017. For some say within the project of Neom that was actually was just handing over these islands without any kind of a frame for that, but actually these islands will be within the project of Neom. They will be used for that project. So handing over these islands also means that the peace agreement, which was made 1979 between Egypt and Israel and negotiated this, this uh, Strait of Tehran deal, which meant that Israel can, can go through the Strait of Tehran without any problems, means that if there is a bridge being built, there needs to be a negotiation between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And I, I think that during these last years, um, especially the normalization agreements or the Abraham Accords um, and the relations between the Gulf countries and Israel serve in some way or the other, the interests of Saudi Arabia or personal interests of Mohammed bin Salman. And just to show you another picture, how Neom actually looks right, right now, is that um, this picture and the meetings took place here. This is, I think, the palace of the king and here is the palace of the, um, of the crown prince. So I will stop sharing my screen. Concerning the relations between Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, I argue that it might negatively, like Neom might negatively impact the relations between Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Um, why is that so? So I think that uh, Mohammed bin Salman's aspirations to complete Neom could lead both markets to competition over the regional market. What does that mean? Um, currently, we know that uh, Dubai has a lot of regional headquarters and a lot of Western companies are, are having their regional headquarters in, in uh, Dubai. And just recently in February, Saudi Arabia declared that until or from 2024 on, so with like after three years, every um, Western or bigger company has to have its regional, its regional headquarters in Saudi Arabia. That means most of the regional headquarters, which are right now based in Dubai, would have to re relocate to Saudi Arabia. If that does not happen, they can't do business. They can't work in Saudi Arabia. This is the, what was declared in February of this year. So the, maybe some of you think, okay, if, is this project uh, going to, like, is it going to be completed during, uh, you know, the next years or because of COVID there are bigger problems and the oil prices, but um, Gregory Goss even um, argued that even if 25% of, if 25% if of Neom are completed in the way that they're planning it, it would have huge impacts on the region. And uh, this is something um, I think we should uh, 
also um, think about when we think about Gulf relations with Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia's foreign relation. In conclusion, or to sum it up, I think that Saudi Arabia during the last years was already using increasingly a neon diplomacy, but also will in the future with Mohammed bin Salman er, as the heir designate, will use this neon diplomacy in negotiations or in uh, other places. Um, another point in my conclusion um, is that I think with Mohammed bin Salman, there will be um, a 360 degree recalibration of foreign affairs of Saudi Arabia. So one point I can make here still in the end is that Saudi Arabia, for example, or NEOM, um, the, the Russians, the Russian investment fund invested several billion dollars in NEOM or is going to invest several billion dollars in NEOM. And as I said, just uh, some minutes before, the foreign minister of China met uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Neom. So we will see that relations will change in the coming years. And uh, this is how I also want to stop my talk. Thank you. Thank you, Ali, for sharing your assessment. What you had also noted in your recent piece is how Saudi Arabia and the UAE are also competing for international investments. And you also mentioned the whole point about relocation of the, of the firms to, to Saudi Arabia. So this is a fitting note for our third and final speaker, Dr. Yoel Guzanski, who will discuss the limits of the UAE-Israel relationship, and the one that sparked off more agreements after its first official announcement. We have witnessed since the failure of an Emirati purchase of an Israeli football club and also obstacles in the realm of cybersecurity. So, well, in your co-authored book with Clive Jones, you equally mentioned that Israel-Gulf ties encapsulates Israel's use of soft technical power for hard diplomatic gains. So how has that evolved since the normalization deals? Dr. Guzanski, the stage is yours. Thank you. Uh, you probably have to unmute yourself as well. Thank you. Good morning to all. Privileged to participate. Thank you, Clemens. Uh, before I start talking about some of the challenges uh, and prospects of the future uh, uh, regarding Israel-UAE uh, and Israel-Gulf relations, I want you all to imagine a model, a very simple model that describes, uh, uh, I think, the best, uh, what, it is real, what is Israel-Gulf relations? Uh, the model is very simple. You can imagine two lines. The upper line we can say is the public more open relations. Uh, these two lines don't meet, they go parallel to one another. The lower line is the more strategic tacit uh, dimension of, uh, of the relations. Um, both line uh, goes uh, sometimes in different directions. Sometimes different uh, developments affect those lines differently. And I give you uh, an example. Uh, Biden entering the Oval Office could perhaps uh, limit uh, and slow down public normalization uh, with the UAE for various examples. If you took the Palestinian issue, if you take US Gulf relations, uh, and, and other things. However, the strategic and tacit line in the model and vector 
may actually be strengthened because of the mutual, let's say, worries that both UAE and Israel have from uh, Biden administration. What is it going to do regarding Iran? What is the future US policy in the Middle East? So this is a very simple model of to, how to understand uh, Israel-Gulf relation. And these two lines developed uh, in different pace uh, along the years and, and sometimes going in opposite uh, ways. Regarding Israel and Iraqi normalization, I think it has the potential to be a game changer uh, for Israel, perhaps for the Middle East, but this yet, uh, but this didn't happen yet. It does have an economic potential and it can even bolster Israel deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Certainly, uh, if Saudi Arabia follow Abu Dhabi's uh, footsteps, Israel will find itself in a more favorable, uh, favorable strategic environment. This will change the regional balance of power. Uh, no question about it, uh, if the Saudis will join. Uh, Jerusalem and Abu Dhabi assess the region similarly, though not identically. The overlapping Israeli and Emirati threat perceptions that Yossi mentioned before uh, might, might explain why security cooperation predates the Abraham Accords by many years. And this is the strategic line that I talked about, vector. Uh, to be sure, the agreement, the Abraham Accord, provide a more solid footing, perhaps for uh, what we call soft power cooperation. Uh, but going public may uh, have challenges sometimes. It may actually limit some security elements that would be uh, best kept in the shadows. Security elements, security cooperation between the UAE and Israel, I mean. Um, the normalization agreement uh, position Israel and the UAE together um, and presents uh, a set of complex challenges and possible risks. The agreement, for example, exposes the UAE uh, to criticism, provocations, and you know potentially even threats to its uh, national security from Iran. Uh, while normalization may provide uh, a firmer footing for defense cooperation, the UAE hardly intends to become Israel forward operating, operating based against Iran. If anything, the UAE has been de-escalating with Iran in the last year, year and a half. I think Israel is not intent to become a UAE forward operating base against Turkey in the Mediterranean. Uh, regarding the JCPOA, uh, I hardly see a united front vis-a-vis -vis the Biden administration. I think both the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and uh, the Emirates, because of the delicate relations with the U.S., will stay uh, quiet, publicly, of course. Uh, quietly, of course, they will continue to coordinate with Jerusalem what should be uh, the right policy uh, regarding Iran and regarding U.S. policy. Uh, uh, with Iran. I think Israel should and is indeed focused on the nuclear issue while you see other GCC main concerns and perhaps rightly so 
is the missile threat on the Gulf countries. If anyone needs a proof, just look at recent attacks on Saudi Arabia in recent weeks from Yemen, from Iraq, and from other places. Uh, and also Iran interventions uh, uh, in Yemen is more focused, is more concerning to Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, while Iran intervention in Syria is more uh, uh, and more concerned by Israel. Those differences between the two sides uh, and the reluctance of some of the GCC states to come out of the light in their relations with Israel, I think, and also the fact that the trend now in the GCC is rather a rapprochement or de-escalating with Iran, I think those factors will make it difficult on them to form and what in recent weeks some newspapers called uh, a security pact uh, with Israel. I think uh, something tacit and unofficial, sure, but that, that was the name of the game for so many years. So this will continue. I think uh, if you look at the differences between Israel and, and the UAE, there's differences in the narrative. Uh, if you look at what the UAE is saying to its publics, uh, it, it's saying about the Abraham Accord, it's saying uh, this, those accords were, be, were very beneficial to us. They look at what the accords gave to them, and this is what they explain to their public. In Israel, it's a bit different. In the Israeli public and Israeli elite, uh, the narrative was something like, oh, we were expect, uh, accepted to the region. Uh, uh, I think the aspiration of Israel is uh, to get uh, to be a part of the region uh, are not new. And this is this difference in the narrative and perhaps in the expectations of both publics and governments uh, might form some sort of a gap. And there's already some uh, perhaps slight disappointment in, in, uh, in, uh, in Israel uh, from that. I'll give you one example. Uh, what I called, and you know, we talk about the Abraham Accords, but what is the Abraham Accords really? The Abraham Accord is one agreement plus three. The main most important agreement is between the Israel and UAE. The other three agreements are still lacking substance. Uh, with time, perhaps we'll see more uh, uh, substance in them. And I'm talking about, of course, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. The, the main agreement, the first agreement was the most important also for the achievement, achieving of the last three agreements. Without UAE support, even funding uh, and Saudi Arabia behind the scenes, Sudan and Bahrain would never uh, go forward, and of course the U.S. And and the same uh, I can say uh, with uh, Morocco. I think I have more to say, but I'm I'm not sure how much time I have. I want to say one more thing uh, that I'm not sure Israelis uh, fully understand about what people, citizens uh, in the Gulf, think about Israel. Um, I think 
this agreement with the UAE was another agreement, another example of an agreement between governments, between elite, very similar to what uh, Israel has with Jordan and Egypt. Uh, it, do, it does have potential. We do see signs of other things. Uh, but so far, I mean, if you check, for example, uh, surveys and polls that have been conducted in the UAE and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and I'm, let's talk about the recent years, year, uh, half a year be before the Abraham Accords and half a year, six months after the Abraham Accords. We do, by the way, see a slight change, uh, more favorable towards Israel, but still, 70 to 80% of Emiratis and Saudis uh, don't want to see uh, a public normalization with Israel. Only 20% from in, in citizen in those country are favorable of normalization uh, with Israel. So perhaps with time, we'll see a change in that. But this, I think, uh, a simple fact that is not known uh, in Israel. It was a de decision by the leader, by Muhammad bin Zayed, to go forward. This decision will not uh, be uh, implemented without massive, massive pressure from uh, the Trump administration and very, very lucrative carrots in the form of the F-35 and other things. Uh, my last sentence, uh, um, my last comment, is that uh, in the same manner that without the third party, the US, without the US, those relations were never uh, gone public and out of the closet without the pressure and the carrots. Uh, at the same time, the third party, the US, is also, and, and the commitment of the US and the Biden administration has. Uh, um, a lot of uh, uh, effect and influence of of the of the on the Abraham Accords. So, what the U.S. position will be going forward from now? So far, the rhetoric is very good. By the way, of the Biden administration, he said he's, he, he he welcomed the the accord and he supports them. But this is rhetorically the wind that is blowing from the White House is very cold and chill towards uh, the Gulf country. Uh, the F-35 is being examined, other things are being postponed. I, I want to share with you that I think it's already affecting the relations. The pace of normalization is being slowed because of that. This is a way that the UAE perhaps tried to pressure Washington. If it uh, slowed down normalization pace with Israel, they hope Israel might pressure perhaps the US, but they do understand but Israel doesn't have the leverage uh, that it had uh, in the Trump administration and the influence it had in Washington before. Uh, this might also affect negatively uh, the Abraham Accords. So I'm a bit pessimistic at the end. I see a slowdown uh, and we're very much dependent on this third party uh, to fulfill its commitment. Thank you.
effort, but at least he's out. If, if you remember, I think Carter's uh, remark uh, uh, back then, uh, he's a son of, a, he's our son of Israel, and of course the U.S. Uh, um, don't, um, um, I say, don't look at uh, at, uh, at the form of the government, uh, uh, the countries they they have relations with, but uh, the approach is more realpolitik. This is the neighborhood, the Middle East. These are our neighbors. We we don't live in Switzerland, or in uh, in Europe. And this is what we got, so we have to uh, handle what we got. Saudi Arabia is not perfect. So there's the moral issue. And I think even Israeli public uh, and pundits didn't really handle this matter carefully. Should Israel really cultivate relations with uh, uh, autocratic uh, regimes? Look, either Jordan or Egypt are not democracies and we have relations with them and these relations are important. So I think a realpolitik approach is the correct uh, approach. The other thing is getting close to Saudi Arabia, while well, the image of Saudi Arabia and, and especially of Mohammed bin Salman is so bad, and especially in the US. Um, Israel, I think, and I wrote it as well, I should be very careful uh, in supporting uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, nowadays, uh, it shouldn't be seen as too close to Saudi Arabia, especially in the US, where the image uh, of Mohammed bin Salman, uh, this is, is bad, this is uh, another understatement. Uh, and, and especially in Congress, there's many voices that actually pressuring uh, uh, the president to be more tough on the Saudis after the report being released and, uh, and other things. So Israel should be very careful uh, in, it, in its uh, treatment uh, nowadays of Saudi Arabia. It can approach the Biden administration carefully and quietly and tell them, listen, and I wrote it as well, don't throw the baby with the bathwater. I mean, don't, I mean, if, if, you, if you're being too tough on, on the Saudis, it's actually, uh, you can you can um, negatively affect both the stability inside Saudi Arabia and also regional matters, and you, you just play in the hands uh, of Iran. So this is on this question on de-escalation with Iran. I think uh, Israel should very carefully look at the beginning. I think the beginning of some dialogue, uh, and there's already dialogue. Uh, between Iran and the U.S. I think Israel should be worried. I mean, on the surface, Israel should be worried of uh, some kind of uh, a dialogue between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia and some of the Gulf states. Israel needs and wants, it's in its interest, I think, uh, to form a united Arab-Sunni monarchy bloc uh, against Iran and Israel and the Trump administration worked very hard uh, to do that. This bloc is crumbling. Um, um, I think if one wants to look at uh, 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 Saudi Iran ties, I think the, the upcoming Hajj will be a very good barometer. Uh, it's always a good barometer to look at, at the Hajj, at the pilgrimage to see uh, about the ties. Will the Saudis, it also depends on Corona, 
but will the Saudis uh, permit uh, Iranians to uh, to go and also can serve as a as a trigger to a dialogue between uh, the two countries. Another barometer that we might look for a hint on how the relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia will develop is Abu Dhabi. We've seen Abu Dhabi in the last year and a half getting uh, sending all kinds of signals to Iran, de-escalating with Iran, uh, trying to improve relations, getting its forces out of Yemen, sending all kinds of delegations, uh, unfreezing money that Iran had in Emiratis banks, all kinds of meetings taking place. Uh, UAE sometimes uh, is, is the barometer. Uh, if you want to see where the Saudis perhaps will follow next, the UAE moves fast, sometimes before uh, the Saudis, and the Saudis usually, not always, follow uh, UAE uh, steps. There's very interesting signals bet uh, in, in between two sides, both Iran and Saudi Arabia, and also signals from Qatar uh, and other uh, potential uh, uh, moderators and, and uh, uh, facilitators like the Omanis and perhaps the Kuwaitis inside the Gulf who wants to, to uh, promote a dialogue. So the Qataris are working hard to do that. And the last uh, agreement within the GCC, the Al-Ula agreement uh, that brought Qatar back, although formally, uh, formally, I have to say very carefully, actually can help a dialogue between the GCC uh, and Iran. I think the last comment that I have on that, because this is a very interesting subject, I think Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman also understand the limits of its powers. All kinds of intervention and, and, and regional uh, uh, project that he had in Yemen and elsewhere, even in Africa, uh, nothing materialized. Even the Qatar blockade was a disaster for the Saudis, and the agreement is actually uh, actually surrendering to uh, all of Qatar uh, agreements. Nothing from the agreements so far, uh, the 13 uh, uh, first agreements that, uh, that the countries demanded from Qatar, nothing, of course, was materialized. So I think Ben Salman, with all, all of the projects being uh, a, a devastating disaster, I think because he wants to improve its, his image because of the Biden administration, uh, new policy and new wind. I think you will see both the Saudis and the Emiratis uh, less assertive in the region, more focusing on internal, trying to improve human rights, doing all kinds of political gestures uh, towards the White House. And one of those gestures might be, and I'm sorry for the very long answer, one of those gestures might be uh, 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 reaching out to Iran. And also there's the question of Yemen, of course, that we don't have time to, very complicated. Thanks, Yoel. Um, before I take the next round of question, maybe I would like to, to go back to one of Yoel's points earlier during his presentation on the rhetoric um, that the US has adopted, that he has in general welcomed the accords but it's also sending you know, a, a chill wind to the Gulf. So I want to hear what Yossi thinks about it. That's, so I'll, I'll let you hold that thought first. Uh, we've got another question for, for Ali, uh, which is, you know, since there's so much about Neom and also the fact that Israel has been a startup nation you know, and, and, and probably an indispensable partner for, for such an endeavor. So 
will normalization you know between the two be sooner rather than later so that's that's for you ali and, and i'll let you, let you hold that thoughts first um we have my colleague uh, asif shuja who has raised his hand um asif could you please uh, unmute yourself to ask your question Thank you, uh, Clement. Uh, my question is uh, to our guest, Yossim Melman. Uh, uh, I was really impressed by uh, his analysis on, on the domestic election uh, in Israel. And uh, I was struck by his analysis that uh, this time uh, the election, uh, in the election, the foreign policy did not roll any play in the outcome. Uh, but normally, uh, whenever election happens, the foreign policy uh, uh, we always take it as a referendum back home, you know, for foreign policy. And uh, when a deal of the century, uh, I think Israel also agreed to that phrase, the deal of the century has happened, uh, which has such deep impact on the society and polity and the future of a country. At this point of time, when uh, Netanyahu has not won the desired uh, mandate, then uh, what? how do we analyze the replication or the implication of this important, very important epoch of history uh, on the Israeli society. And uh, that is important uh, for me, especially because if I look at the future of Iran nuclear deal or Iran-US relationship, because uh, a lot of it is driven by uh, the foreign policy of Israel, you know, and now after the Abraham Accord, as uh, the other speakers have also alluded to that, a lot of it will also be in conjunction with Saudi Arabia, you know, and other Gulf states. So at that time, uh, concluding that the foreign policy does not have impact on the domestic politics of Israel, how far would that be, uh, you know, uh, convenient? How, how far would that be, uh, you know, uh, important? Uh, especially if we conclude that foreign policy do not have them, there will be definite replications on the Iran nuclear deal, you know? So I would like uh, my esteemed guest to please, uh, uh, draw some light uh, on that. And let me just conclude. I really liked your analysis. Uh, it was a very different perspective that I got. Thank you so much, Clement. Thank you, Asif. Um, let uh, Yossi answer the questions first, followed by Ali. Thanks. Thank you, Asif, for, for, for your comments. Um, the bottom line is that foreign relations did not influence is the foreign uh, foreign policy did not influence the the never ending ongoing four elections and maybe we are waiting we are we might have a fifth round of elections. However, the prime minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who is a who is a statesman on the world stage, has been trying. To, to get credit and, uh, for his achievements, whether he deserves them or not is a different question, but he tried to, to uh, maximize um, the, the, the success of the Abraham Accords, the breakthrough in relations, although tacit and secret, uh, not always on the surface with Saudi Arabia, but, but the public, has been so fatigued, so tired of the domestic problems facing Israel, and, and above all, the, the, the political 
the political rivalries and the poisonous atmosphere uh, in Israel itself that he simply ignored it. You, you, there is another very good example how the two foreign policy and even strategic achievements are not uh, are not uh, paying off, uh, are not uh, being uh, acknowledged and recognized by the Israeli public. And this is the uh, the question of vaccination. Uh, Israel is the has already a sixty percent uh, of people being vaccinated and ninety percent of uh, of of its citizens above the the age of 50. So it's a great, great achievement. It doesn't matter now that why Netanyahu was so pushing to get these uh, doses, but he managed to get them. Uh, and Netanyahu was trying to play the cards of, I saved the nation. I made, the, uh, I saved Israel from the coronavirus. Uh, but the, the nation, the public, was very very apathetic about it because he started of the all the other uh, problems which are facing Israel and therefore there is no relations no correlation between achievements on 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 foreign policy and achievements on 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 the domestic front. Well, I assume it's true about many many nations. Uh, it was uh, Henry Kissinger who said that Israel doesn't have a foreign policy, only a domestic uh, policy, uh, and he was he was saying he was saying that in the 70s, when he was national security advisor and and, and foreign minister. So that's that's the only explanation that the uh, that the last world. Uh, which is of concern for Israelis is to bring stability and tranquility and to purify the poisonous atmosphere of Israeli politics, which is taking over every good will, every good uh, ray of hope. And uh, it explains why maybe this time Netanyahu will have to uh, will leave office, although it's not clear. Now, what will be the ramifications of if Netanyahu is replaced? I don't think there will be any change of, of policy, of uh, major changes of policy when there is a change of guard. I would even argue that, it, that the, the, the opposite can, can, uh, can happen, that, uh, that actually the, the, whoever will be the, the 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 successor whether it would be uh, names that you don't know don't recognize or know like Yair Lapid or even uh, Naftali Bennett who used to be for a short time Minister of Defense uh, if they are in power actually the relations with with foreign countries would be uh, or and with the Arab world would be even better because the Israeli security establishment would have much more saying in, in determining foreign policy. Netanyahu has dominated foreign policy and he's, if you wish, hijacked it from its security establishment, from the heads of the Mossad and the heads of the uh, military. Well, the Mossad, Yossi Cohen is a good 
is a very intimate friend of Netanyahu, but all in all, Netanyahu sometimes hasn't been listening to what they were saying, as for example, on Iran. The, the Israeli security establishment is relatively very moderate at, uh, than Israeli politicians, right-wing politicians. It was an Israeli member of parliament who said, or who belong who belonged to the right-wing Netanyahu's faction, the Likud party, who said, I, I don't understand why the heads of, his, of our security, when they enter office, they become leftists, left-wingers, liberals. So the, the Israeli security chiefs are much more moderate, much more restrained than Israeli right-wing uh, right uh, politicians, including Netanyahu. So the, 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 the uh, the consensus among most of the security chiefs was that the deal with Iran is not, has many flaws, is not ideal, but it's better to have the deal than not to have the deal. It was Netanyahu who coined the term, uh, no deal is better than a bad deal. So if the, if he's, if he's, if he's replaced, uh, then I believe that relations with the United Arab Emirates and even with Saudi Arabia uh, and would be solid, stable, and even there might be some way, um, uh, you know, there might be, uh, might be some even more achievements because the military and the security would, would call... Uh, Will uh, will call the shots, or will and it's not that you know they they are perfect on they and they are wiser than the politicians, but they are more restrained. They have a better balanced uh, international orientation, and therefore I don't see any major changes in Israel's foreign policy, even if Netanyahu is uh, is going to you know is going to leave office. It, I think it is attributed, and that's my final comment, it was attributed to Charles de Gaulle, uh, the French president, who said that, the, you know, that cemeteries are filled with people who believe during their lifetime that they are irreplaceable. Thank you, Yossi, and I hope that answers your question, Asif. Um, before we move to Ali, uh, another question for Yoel on Yemen, on the Yemeni crisis, and, and you know, what kind of what kind of geostrategic importance does Yemen have for Israel um, apart from its national security? We've, we've looked at it from a maritime point of view and also equally the Horn of Africa, but how does that play into the wider dynamics with the Gulf? So that's, that's, uh, that's your question for later, Yoel. So Ali. Yeah, um, connecting actually um, some of the arguments which Joel and Yossi made, I also think that there is a, um, a Machiavellian kind of realpolitik going on in the Middle East, and um, especially the intelligence agencies in the Middle East or in the Gulf uh, nations especially, and Israel are really active as um, kind of negotiators between governments, because um, as we also had it in the Cold War, it wasn't always easy to publicly um, negotiate with countries between East and the West or 
you know, um, uh, Iraq, for example, with uh, the West, there is always something um, which can be like the state can always use its intelligence agencies, the secrecy of intelligence agencies to build up the fundament of a fundament of, uh, of negotiations and relations. And now coming to the question with startups, um, also um, uh, combining that with what I said before, I think startups were already in contact with the Saudi government as far uh, as maybe some of you remember. I mean, the cybersecurity firms were through uh, companies in the US um, in contact with the Saudi government. And I think when we discuss about NEOM and startups in NEOM, depending on if sooner or later this um, some stages of NEOM are, are, are ready, I think that also depending on the political, political sphere and the political negotiations, um, either in the coming years, it will be open that startups work in NEOM or it will be done through a third, comp a, a third um, country. And I don't think that it is not possible. It is already possible. And in Riyadh, there, um, uh, I, I saw a lot of, of uh, startups being in contact with other startups all around the world. And it's not just that the Israelis have startups, it's also that Saudi Arabia um, I mean, the, the young population, I mean, I think almost half of the Saudi population is under 30. And that means that there are a lot of young people and uh, most of them are, are, I would say, in contact with the West in the way that they were studying in Europe or studying in the US or are in contact with the West through social media. And they are a, lit, uh, a lot of people who are in contact with technology. So. I mean, when I was in Saudi Arabia, I, I saw that, you know, like uh, some people were working on or writing about drones and how they're like how um, the the technology of drones is, is being uh, improved in, in the Middle East. And there is a lot going on what we maybe don't see, but um, uh, there is a kind of uh, civil society which is really interested in working in this kind of uh, on this kind of projects. And I think that um, coming back to the relations between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia, I think the, that uh, in future, if sooner or later, if this is going to happen and uh, if, if the fundament of this political relations is made, there can be um, exchanges between starters. I mean, in, 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 in political science and in diplomacy, there is this um, a term called track 1.5 and track two diplomacy. So kind of experts on the region, which talk together, which is not official, but there is a kind of uh, discussion between, you know, like uh, participants of one country and the other. And I think this is what, what uh, probably is going to happen in future between uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Ali. Thank you for your comments. You are? Yemen, yes. Uh, let me say that. Yemen is becoming more and more important to Israel national security. Uh, I think, first of all, because Yemen uh, and what the Houthis are doing from Yemen for the last five years um, and actually escalating because it uh, weakens Saudi Arabia. It's a way, a very cheap way and very official uh, Iranian way 
uh, to hurt Saudi Arabia at its backyard. Um, Israel doesn't have an interest that Saudi Arabia will be weakened. On the contrary, uh, it, uh, I mean, the, the war in Yemen showed to anyone who needed a proof how Saudi with the, probably the largest investment in per capita in the world on security, it has the third or fourth largest uh, spending uh, budget on security after uh, US, China, and perhaps Russia. It's massive, but it's a paper tiger. It cannot uh, defend its long uh, borders, its strategic installation. And in the last years and last weeks, we've seen more and more demonstrations uh, to that. So this is uh, one reason why Yemen is important to Israel. The other reason Yemen is important to Israel, it's a jumpstart, it's, it's, uh, it's a venue for Iran to penetrate Israel South, uh, the Red Sea arena where Iran was more uh, uh, active in the past. Uh, I think uh, this is uh, the second. We have to understand that the Red Sea is the, uh, is the portal uh, to Israel, especially in the maritime uh, uh, issue. And we, in recent weeks, uh, seen an escalation, or at least it's gone uh, out of the out of the closet, an escalation uh, in the in the maritime war or conflict between Iran and Israel. We've seen, according to foreign reports, uh, Israel targeting Iranian ships in the Red Sea in the Mediterranean, and Iranian targeting. Uh, some ship that is owned by Israeli businessmen, a few uh, uh, in and around uh, the Gulf and the Gulf of Oman. Uh, the other threat from Yemen um, is surface-to-surface -surface missiles. Although Yemen is very far, we've seen Israel uh, putting a few, uh, at least one uh, battery of iron, uh, uh, iron dome in the city of Elad, the most southern city in Israel, because the Houthis made threats to, to hit Israel. I think Israel has more vulnerabilities uh, from Yemen. I mean, I don't think the surface-to-surface -surface missile is, the, is the, the first vulnerability and the first threat. I think the maritime issue is, is a bigger threat to Israel because Bab el-Mandeb Straits is where the ships continue uh, uh, towards uh, Israel, but when there's the surface-to-surface -surface missile, and we've seen the Houthis are very developed with, uh, with the help of Iran, Hezbollah, and others, perhaps the North Koreans, uh, in threatening mainland Saudi Arabia and even uh, the UAE. I think Israel has an interest to, to uh, bring about the end of the war in Yemen in a way that will weaken uh, Houthis and Iran connection. This connection was not strong as it is now five years ago. Iran took advantage of many mistakes the Saudis uh, made, and also some of the very uh, rightful claims of the Houthis. Um, the Saudis made a very important move a week ago when they declared and published their um, terms of an agreement 
they're willing basically to go most of the way, if not all the way, towards the Houthis. If you look at what the, uh, the Saudis uh, uh, published, the foreign ministry a week ago, you see that the Houthis demands uh, very much fulfilled. The problem is that it made, it was declared under fire. I mean, we, under the escalation of the Houthis in recent weeks, so Saudi Arabia has been seen as one who surrendered uh, because of the military pressure. Uh, this is one thing. The other thing, we see the Houthis rejecting it. And actually, it, uh, um, we have a saying in Hebrew, it's actually uh, uh, causing them, to, uh, bringing more appetite and actually causing them to, to attack more Saudi Arabia because now Saudi Arabia is seen as, as a weak uh, player. It is good for the Saudis. I think it's a good move by the Saudis. Maybe the timing was very bad, but, but the move is good to show the world that it's not Saudi Arabia to blame, but the Houthis uh, who has relations uh, with Iran and Iran is pressuring the Houthis, I guess, to, to actually escalate now in light of the US-Iranian dialogue. Iran needs more chips in its, in its hand, more cards in its hand in the upcoming dialogue. And Yemen is a very important uh, card for the Iranians uh, to hold. Thank you. Thank you, Yoel, for an elaborate answer. So in the interest of time, we will have one more round of questions. And I would like to invite our speakers to respond in one minute to these questions. So we'll start with Yossi on the question of what are the prospects of further normalization with Arab states? That's, that's for you. For Ali, um, you know, what is, what is your overall assessment of the impact uh, of NIOM on, on the Saudi economy? So that's for you. And for Yoel, uh, and this, this question came from my colleague, you know, you were quoted recently in the Jerusalem Post as saying that Israel should offer the Iron Dome to KSA. So that is interesting considering uh, another view that notes that Riyadh had approached South Korea for advice on defending airspace in the wake of the Aramco attacks. So do you think that even if the offer was made, Saudi Arabia would accept or are there any other covert defense cooperation moves that you can mention? So these are your one minute uh, questions. We'll start with Yossi. Um, I, I think that, uh, that more Arab nations and not only Arab, or, but it, some Muslim nations like Indonesia uh, may, jo uh, may join uh, uh, reconciliation and peace and diplomatic initiatives vis-a-vis -vis Israel. As I, as I mentioned in, in my introductory remarks, uh, Israel has already six diplomatic, uh, six, uh, diplomatic missions in the Arab world, um, three, four, five um, other nations have some sort of uh, tacit understandings or even intelligence ties uh, covered uh, operations with Israel. Um, so, and if there is a deal between uh, United States and Iran, I think it would enable more Muslim and Arab states to join the, the diplomatic wagon with Israel. And my final comment is that um, Iran is a threat, uh, is threatening Israel, it's a threat, 
it's destabilizing the region, but Iran is also a weak society. It's one of the most corrupted nations on earth. It has a lot of domestic problems, ethnical issues. So I think the, uh, one shouldn't uh, overplay uh, and uh, the, the, the image of Iran as an omnipotent uh, uh, nation or at least the government of Iran and the ruling uh, and the ruling circles of Iran. Thank you, Yossi. Ali? Yeah, my uh, overall assessment would be that um, I think in the end, Saudi Arabia is going to use NAOM for reshaping the image in the West. And uh, we will see with NAOM if it uh, really um, uh, goes into another stage that there will be, as I said, a 360 degree recalibration of foreign affairs and um, as I said, also NEOM is, is not just NEOM itself. There is a whole, um, there are a lot of mega projects behind NEOM. And we will see in the future when uh, Mohammed bin Salman also becomes king, how he's going to use these mega projects to reshape the image and how, as you also said with your question to UL, um, how Saudi Arabia is gonna look eastwards and not only westwards. Thank you, Ali. Are you well? Your last word. I wrote a very provocative uh, piece a week ago. The headline was that Israel should offer Saudi Arabia Iron Dome. Uh, but, but the article, of course, is, is uh, a bit different and wider. I think Israel should offer Saudi Arabia assistance in defending its sovereignty uh, in installations. I think Israel has a lot of knowledge. I think this offer should be quiet not to embarrass the Saudis like we uh, usually uh, do. By the way, the, the appointment, uh, the meeting in Neom, uh, there was the leak. The leak was the, from the prime minister's office, as I understand it. And it was embarrassing for the Saudis. And, 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 and usually those leaks hurt the ties, not improving uh, uh, the ties. I think those, uh, I mean, in the Gulf right now, we see both the Saudis and the Americans struggling to defend uh, those installations, not in, in very good success. I think Israel should help and can help. Uh, if Israel will deliver some kind of, you know, you know keep in mind that some of those, uh, uh, some of this technology was uh, produced with the Americans. So we need an American approval. And also it might be uh, under American supervision with American uh, soldier. And uh, this might help Israel to prevent all kinds of uh, uh, linkage of technology and secrets uh, that, uh, the, uh, that uh, the, uh, um, uh, those Iron Dome uh, has. I think it's, it's good for Israel to offer it. I think the Saudis will refuse, even if it's quietly. But it's sometimes important to offer something, even if you know you uh, will be refused, and you might, you know, uh, cash the check in in a later uh, in a later time. And Israel might earn some dividends from just offering assistance. Thank you. Thank you, Yoel. So with that, we have come to the end of today's online event, and of course. Our audience and likewise myself have benefited from the insights of our three speakers today. 
Um, so thank you to our audience also to put forward for putting forward your questions. Um, and we at MEI look forward to seeing you on our other events for the year. Um, to our three speakers, again, sincere gratitude to all three of you. Could I just ask you to stay on for a screenshot or a photo by our events team? And so to all our audience, thank you very much again, once again. Um, Sharon, do we want to proceed with the screenshot, please? Uh, yes, please, everyone, if you can just uh, smile. Okay. Just give me one more second. Okay, smile. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And bye bye, you bye, bye. bye bye, Ali. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye bye.